You're listening to More Than This, the podcast where Christian faith and reason explore reasons for Christian faith. Life's not a sequence program from the sky. Life's a story woven up, down, in and out, like stitches in If you enjoy our show, please consider supporting us for as little as $1 a month on Patreon. Check out our site at www.patreon.com forward slash more than this pod. Thank you. Hey, welcome in. Brooke and I are distanced again. It's very sad, but uh, we tried to record this yesterday, full disclosure, more than this listener. And I had internet troubles, so uh, knock on wood, prayers for uh, continued uninterrupted internet access here for me. <laughs> but uh, And we tried to talk on the phone and rig it up, and Brooke's like, you just feel too far away. Like, it, we don't feel like, and I was like, that makes sense. We did. Yeah, this is absolutely. It's much more intimate <laughs> and personal the way we have it rigged up now. So... Brooke, I'm excited for this week. We're continuing. Uh, I don't think I announced this or we announced this very well uh, with our last episode. We're doing a series on transitions. It's been a lot That's of right. there's been a lot of talk this year, Brooke, hasn't there, about transitions uh, and what COVID has meant for some transitions under themselves and how it's affected other transitions as well. That's right. Yeah, lots of change. Lots of change, and thinking about how it's changed traditional transitions as well, like like marriage, right? Getting married. Hmm. Uh, graduating high school or college, like things that are sort of major transitions and rites of passage have been deeply impacted this year. Hmm. That's, yeah, good point. So it's it's interesting. Transitions are already hard enough, but it's almost like uh, COVID has doubled down on some of these. And I think our topic of today, we're, we're going to talk about transitions in occupation or career and probably talk a little about the more sort of more Christian-y concept of vocation. Uh, as it relates to like what what it is we're meant to do with our life as designed by God, both personally and sort of circumstantially. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Um, and Brooke and I were talking before this, and it, it Brooke, you made an interesting statement. And I wonder if you could, uh, I don't know if there's much more to say about it, but you said, boy, it's really hard to talk too long about career without talking about money too. Right. I thought that was very interesting, and I, I wanted to play devil's advocate. I'm like, no, it, it's kind of true. Uh, mm-hmm. There's that inextricable link between uh, getting paid and working a, working a job and how much uh, a job influences our life and how much time it takes up. Yep. And it's it's funny because I also think back – I think, well, you know, as children, you talk about what do I want to be when I grow up? But it's only till college that you really start to think about career or job in terms of a major, in terms of, you know, okay, how much money do I want to make? But I think, I mean, for me, I'm thinking back to the money part wasn't so connected in college. For me, I was thinking about what do I love? What do I want to study? What do I want to deep dive into. How am I made? How am I made? Maybe. How am I made? Who am I? Exactly. And and it's funny now because I'm 39 and I have two degrees and both (laughs) are in subjects that have not made me a lot of money. I mean, the first one was in fine art. And then the one I just finished was in Middle East studies. So I think that says a lot about how in one way, 
I don't think about career or vacation connected to money, but then I don't know when I, when I talk with others and when I, 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 I guess I'm, what I'm trying to say is I realize I'm a bit odd in that regard. And maybe I would have made some different decisions if I were to do it all over again. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. Money's always in the mix. If you think of like a sort of a list of priorities and leading edges that you sort of take into looking for a job and thinking about a job, money always has to be in there somewhere because we have to live, most of us. Um, right. But I'm, I'm also curious uh, to connect some dots from our growing up. You know, I mean, uh, listeners know that you lived abroad for a decade. Uh, mm -hmm. And... I'm guessing your decision-making process was not primarily one of looking at financial brochures, looking at your, your degree and doing a rational calculus. Like, I think being uh, a minister overseas to a small church plant will be, I'll be maximizing my economic utility by doing yeah. this. It probably wasn't your lead consideration. Uh, so I'm wondering how you uh, let's dial back how were you raised what were messages in your 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 home growing up about the leading edges of how you thought about selecting a job and what jobs yeah. were for yeah that's good i i was raised in an environment where the emphasis was more on what are you passionate about who are you what are your giftings uh, what is God calling you to, or what what is the invitation, and do you want to say yes to it, and 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 how do you want to say yes to it? And there are of course options there. I was raised more in that environment than a focus on money. And granted, my parents were missionaries, so the first you know the formative years of my life, missionaries. Then we moved to California, and we were extremely poor. My dad was unemployed for a year then found like a little bookkeeping job at uh, a vineyard church and, you know, changed jobs, jobs, jobs. But anyway, very little money. Uh, but then on very little money, uh, about five years later, bought their first house and then moved to Ohio, bought their second house, uh, you know, started to save for, for retirement. And so I think what I, what has been modeled in my parents is a life that, to use Christian terms, was given to the Lord in, in the ways that they thought God was inviting them to. So to mission, to, to, to church, to, to pastoring. to um, And at the same time, it seemed that their financial needs, I mean, yes, there were very practical choices, like I need jobs, um, but their financial needs were met in that respect. But that was done in a very intentional way. They definitely took risks, um, with their money, but the risk, we, when we talk about risk regarding money, sometimes you think about like risks in investment or risks. And my parents' risks were in giving. And, and when they would, you know, give or, or, um, you know, tithe, another Christian word there, then they would often see that their money would just grow. So they, there was an, there was a sense of trust that was, poured into me from a young age of like your financial needs will be met. Um, and that, that's a bit of a convoluted story, but does that make sense? It does. And that, 
you're saying that had a direct impact on how you thought about work and and, yeah. and paid paid employment that yeah. you're like okay this this can be secondary because there's an issue of faith and trust in God for your provisions not to ever underwrite laziness or you know right. it wasn't like when your dad was unemployed he was just like saying no, he, saying like no the lord will provide i'm not looking for no. work uh it just he was substitute teaching he was working his butt off yeah but right he didn't have a full-time job and we yeah. and we've all we've all had times like that uh mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm sure brooke you'll share your you're in a present time where you're you have income but you're you're still you're looking for work as well uh, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, yeah. we can we can kind of relate. We've had those conversations about each other's career. I'm, I've been I'm True. one who has transitioned a lot through different fields and different you know sort of endeavors. So um, I get that as well. Yeah. But I, how, it, how was it for you, David? What was your what was the water of your upbringing in terms of how you looked at career, financial? Yeah, it was different than your so similar base that there was Christian faith there, a lot of emphasis on religious adherence, but my my dad was also very risk averse. I think he was generous in his way. He was not generous toward himself. Uh, he spent nothing on himself. Um, and he sort of took as little risk as possible. There's lots of jokes about working for the government. Uh, it's mm-hmm. sort of a secure sort of like you know, position where you just sort of like grow uh, mediocre and lackadaisical and you just sort of get carried along. Like you don't get a lot of raise increases, but you're also, your job security is good. He worked, Hmm. he worked for state government in Pennsylvania, like 29 and three quarter years, I think up until he died. Uh, And he was only 51 when he died. So if you do the math, he started in his very early 20s and probably would have continued on there. This is an era that hardly exists anymore, right? Where people say it's hard to work the same job your, your whole working life. But um, money was obviously attached to that, and he was uh, very conservative about spending money and, you know, had a – Sort of the sort of I think your parents were probably similar. Had you know, debt was bad. Like so, we you just mm-hmm. sort of earned, and like you never, no debt was sort of justifiable. We didn't have a credit card till I was thirteen, and it was only because they got caught uh, on the road, broken down in their car, and they're out of state, and the place wouldn't take their check because they wouldn't take <laughs> out of state checks, and they did. And back then, there were no ATMs, so my dad was like. You know, I have to have a credit card because this could happen again, and that was the only reason wow. he had one. Um, so, but work was work was kind of something you did out of duty. Um, it was a way to provide for family. It wasn't about your identity. It was about feeling secure, about not mm-hmm. having to worry. Uh, although he still worried plenty, and mm-hmm. it wasn't something he talked about. I I I know next to nothing about what my dad did. Like he never mm-hmm. talked about it at home. I didn't really know the characters in his world. Like, I couldn't have picked them out in the lineup. I never saw them, engaged with them, never saw pictures of them, knew no stories about them, really. I I knew a few Mm. shadowy names here or there, but he basically just didn't talk about what he did. Like, nine or ten hours out of the day from when he left from when he came home, I never heard much about it. So um, it was a bit of a black box for me in terms of of knowing 
what was going on, but it was very much stressed that my brother and I often joked that my dad literally said this to me. I think it was in uh, considering a major and a field of employment in my late teens before my dad passed away. He said, uh, son, sometimes you need to settle for a little less in your dreams. That was like, mm-hmm. that was like my, not, it's not unwise, but that was uh, kind of the outlook that my dad had on a lot of life. Hmm. So um, work was basically a pragmatic thing that you used to get money and it bought security and yeah. that was about it and you hoarded it, right? I, I, oh. I, he was a prepper uh, in terms of he had an end, okay. end times theology <laughs> where he, would, he was worried that the economy and the world were going to like fall apart hmm. uh, mm-hmm. tied to sort of the end of days uh, theologically. So. Yeah, what that's interesting. It is. I've talked about it before on the show, but it's okay. It, it's just it's uh, it was it very much went into his view of money too. Hmm. Well, and I think also what's interesting about what you just said was that, uh, well, of course, there's personality involved uh, for your dad and generation, definitely mm-hmm. of a particular generation, really frugal and. That's something my parents have as well, very much. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm actually very grateful for that. Um, but I also think, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, regarding um, that, the, the aspect of not talking about his work when he came home. I also wonder if that's something that was also a generational thing, that now, because of our phones and internet and email, we take work home a lot more than we ever did. I wonder. I'm just thinking of, of that off the top of my head, that work is now the main, and let me put it this way, in America, work is the main topic of conversation because, yeah, most of the hours of the day are spent in that, and then we take it home with us, too. I think it, it also has to do with the idea of what we talked about last time with identity, right? Belong, mm. Belonging somewhere. Yeah. I think so much more we're looking for a place to belong when we look for work. I don't know that my dad had that on his radar at all, like that yeah. he had to belong somewhere. I think maybe, you know, he did feel like he did a good job. He wanted to be rewarded for a job well done, wanted to be like looked well on and be a good team mm-hmm. member. But people's relationships to institutions were much different back then. People were more, uh, their sense of belonging spread to other things. Other pl- other places provided belonging and institutions don't do that so much anymore, even family it was kind of that yeah. transitional generation where we weren't close with our family, but mm-hmm. also I often, Brooke, I know that you have a cultural vacuum uh, uh, from growing up overseas. Did you ever watch, <laughs> you ever watch a show called The Wonder Years? It was a, a period piece like the late 60s. It was done in the 90s, but the dad. No, I miss that, Jim. Tell me. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really good. It's one of my favorite shows from when I was growing up, but the dad in that show was like, the stereotypical late 60s, early 70s dad. And, like, I remember one day uh, Kevin, the main character, his son, asked him about work. And he's like, what did you do today? And he's like, I busted my hump and, tra- and sat in traffic. He's like, then I got to work and busted my hump all day with people yelling at me. And then hmm. I got back in the car and busted my hump and fought traffic all the way home. Now I'm here. That was it. Hmm. Like, Wow. That was kind of my dad's outlook on work. My mom went back to work when I was like eight, maybe seven, eight. And uh, she worked for the state government as well. And uh, kind of had 
maybe a similar similar outlook, although she seemed to enjoy the, the relational aspect of her work a little bit more. Hmm. And maybe, too, the focus was really, I mean, like I was listening to myself as I said that how I chose a career path and, you know, it was regarding, like, who am I? What do I? And maybe for your dad it was much more to provide, right? Yeah. And I think also what I expressed is a very probably American, probably white perspective, I, I may, perhaps, uh, of that we have the luxury to ask those questions of what do I want to do? What vocation do I want? You know? <laughs> and I, yeah, and um, I, I think a lot of times our career paths now are nonlinear because they are the linearity, everybody blames it on, you know, the fact that companies aren't loyal anymore and you get laid off and all those things. But I think just as much as true, people are very attuned to burnout. They say they get burned out. I'm not saying that some of that's not true, but they sometimes it's uh, successive revelations about yourself. Like hmm. if you get laid off, like you're like, you can reinvent yourself. And sometimes that's strategically economic in nature, but also it's like, well, what do I want to do now that I have an opportunity to? And a lot of that yeah. fact that it's nonlinear uh, may be more about the fact that jobs are, are more and more and careers more implicated with our identity and who we think we are and the kind of lifestyle we want to lead, not just mm. from a financial security perspective. Um, I'm really curious about that. I remember reading a book years ago called The Defining Decade. It was about people in their 20s, and this was probably more Gen X, early millennials. Um, and she made the author made an interesting case. She's a psychologist, and she said, you know, I, I work with young adults a lot, and it seems to me at the time that I have like a spate of people who come in in their early 30s who have a checkered resume because they were told during their 20s they were supposed to seek out experience and pleasure mm -hmm. and things, and now they're behind. They have, you know, they have no savings. They they have like they they don't have a coherent resume that like leads them to any certain one thing. And she basically made the case that that paradox of freedom that we often talk about, putting your, your restrictions on yourself, can actually be freeing in the longer run. And I see mm -hmm. this sometimes with uh, one. I was talking with my wife today about one of uh, a friend that you and I both know. He's worked for a large bank for probably 20, 15 or 20 years, uh, okay. back when it wasn't cool to have a corporate job, like in his 20s. And he probably, he makes hundreds of thousands of dollars a year now. And wow. like, you know, he has, you know, family, his wife works too, and I think has worked for, you know, has stayed in a similar position. They're kind of the opposite model. But hmm. the author's case, Meg Jay is her name. Um, she said, boy, these people turn 35, 40, all of a sudden he's got six weeks of vacation a year and he's got disposable income out the wazoo, like what seemed like, and now he also knows a little bit more about what he wants out of life and has a family. Uh -huh. The blessed is like sometimes limiting yourself up front can actually lead to a richer life on the back end. And I think sometimes we're taught so much to like, go after things and experience things when we're young because we prioritize youth. That's fascinating. And also super difficult because it's in those young years that sometimes, well, unlike our friend, sometimes you don't know what you want. 
you know. Well, that, and that, um, was, that was precisely her point. It, it, that's hardly the, the point. Like, oh, like, like, okay. like, like this person probably didn't want. Here's the thing. Here's the thing, Brooke. I'll, I always joke with my students that most of the world goes on to take jobs they didn't know existed when they were five. Mm-hmm. Like, I never wanted to be a central claims processor for like at whatever I was at Nationwide Insurance because <laughs> you don't know those jobs exist. But it turns out it's a pretty good job when it comes to like having security and like having a decent mm-hmm. income and benefits and things like that and, you know, working eight to four or whatever, you know. But So, th- so he just took a job initially, like out he, of college. I need a job. He got with a good company that was like mildly yeah. – had to do with what he could was qualified to work in. Right. Uh, and I see what you mean. And now, <laughs> and now at 40 or whatever he is, he's got a, a future that looks so much different than wow. a lot of people like me who had, who sort of bounced around to things. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not wringing my hands, but it's like, Oh, I can, yeah. I can, if I could switch lives now, I would be like, Oh yeah, I'll take, you know, income and, and freedom and they travel all the time and do things mm-hmm. that we did in our 20s just with no money because we thought it was just the time to do it like it wouldn't come later and it seems like there's kind of two ways of looking at it maybe i've gotten yeah. us off track but i think that's that's interesting i like that freedom can come later mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's really good so so we looked at kind of the where we come from, what land did we, were we planted in? And now, what should we talk about? <laughs> where are we at now? Well, I yeah. am literally in a, in a career transition, in a job search, which feels endless <laughs> what, at 39. Why, why does it feel endless, Brooke? Just because it's been a while that you've been looking or? It's been a while that I've been looking. I think it's also taking me, it was a big transition because it was a move, an international move, leaving a vocation that just made me so happy um, and that was connected to a community and to a location and to a particular kind of life. So I think it is also a lot of the, who am I really? What do I really want to do? Questions are coming up that often come in the, in, you know, thirties, forties, uh, and that are annoying that they're still coming up. <laughs> but, um, and then of course, pandemic doesn't make it easy. There were a lot of hiring freezes that happened in the spring. So it feels like it's all gotten stretched out a bit. Um, but yeah. So it's on the one. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, how are you different? Some of the, you talked about the questions feeling still the same. How are you, if the questions are the same, what are those questions and how, but how are you different than 27 year old Brooke looking for a job? I know more who I am. I know what I bring. I know, I know more, I know more like what, I'm going to deliver to an organization, but I'm just not quite sure like what the walls of the organization will look like. Mm. Like, should I start an organization? Like, should I start a business? Should I start something? Should I, you know, I'm, um, 
kind of a pioneer entrepreneur kind of person. Like, should I begin something or should I carry who I am into something? It's more about that, I think. But the, the, the knowledge of what is internal, what I bring, the gift, however you want to talk about it, I think that is more clear. Um, yeah, and, I, and, and, and even that, I mean, I'm more clear on it now than even six months ago. And part of that has just been the process of looking for work and sitting in interviews that I leave the interview and realized, oh gosh, I was so indifferent in that interview. Like, I don't want that job, you know? And then super glad I didn't get called back for a second interview, you know, things like that. And, and that informs your decisions as well. Those sorts of spaces and interviews are so helpful to tell you like, oh, okay, let's walk away from that area. I don't want that. <laughs> That's so that's so interesting. I think that is a developmental thing. I think maybe in your 20s, I'm just going to use that as a rough approximation, you might look more for a job to sort of help define who you are, right? Like leaning on maybe like a prestigious internship or looking for certain name value, like certain amenities in a job. Um, hmm. This is broad strokes. But hmm. it is interesting to have a, a transition where um, you learn some things about yourself. And I think I've often heard that, you know, people grumble about young generations and hot shots coming out of college and thinking they're God's gift and thinking they, they know all these things. Um, and then sometimes the real world beating some of the hubris out of you when you get in, into positions, sometimes mm -hmm. not, sometimes you just ride your way to the top. But I think the same thing happened to me in that, I learned through a few jobs things I was really good at that were un, unknown to me um, that I can then say, hey, I think I could add this. Now I'm like not coming to an organization to define me. I'm saying, what can I add to this organization? Like, hmm. where, where do I fit? I know the things where I do is there a place for me here. Do, do I fit better? I think that's probably a little bit of the benefit of being older. But the questions, though, how are they the same? If you're different in that way, how are the questions the same that you that you're still plagued by or still thinking about at 39 as opposed to in your 20s? I think well, I think it's perhaps the scale of the questions that still feel the same. They still feel really big and they still feel like I don't know. I feel I still feel like I'm saying I don't know what I want to do which I can feel really annoyed at myself for that, you know? Um, but then I have to talk myself back and realize, Brooke, all these changes have happened. It makes sense. You don't know what you, you know, you knew you were going to enter a season where you didn't know what you wanted and you have to figure it out. That's normal. Okay. Deep breath. But it's, yeah, I think the scale of the questions feel the same. Um, and I think also just the oddness of, the process of finding work or, or however you call that, like career searching or like, you know, I, I mean, the last time I applied for any sort of job was 15 years ago. So LinkedIn didn't exist and all, you know, all these sorts of things. And so having to the learning curve with all of those areas. And I had a lovely chat with a career counselor at uh, the library by the way, all of our listeners, if you're in a career transition and you want to chat with someone great, Columbus Public Library, free one-hour chat with career counselor. 
It was wonderful. Super helpful advice on my resume and uh, some really good interviews or um, uh, job ideas and interviews came out of that conversation. So that's kind of fun as well, like really having to go through the process probably for the first time in my life because my initial job out of college was through a friend, you know, networking. But this, I think, is the first serious month-long job search. Um, So there is a bit of fun to it as well, because all those questions that I just mentioned are getting answered in the process. Every time I have to write, you know, write something on my LinkedIn page or, you know, write a cover letter or edit a resume, again, I'm figuring out more and more what I want or, or, or more who I am and what I can give to an organization and how I can help them solve the problems they have or how, how do they say that in, in, uh, <laughs> in career counseling? <laughs> That's what you're supposed to do in an interview, right? How, how can I help you solve the problem? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Or whatever that means. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what it means. I feel like I should have gotten better. I think interviewing is not as daunting as it used to be for me. I'm a little more confident. It doesn't mean I'm better at it. Like, I don't think I get better results necessarily, but um, I find the conversations more engaging now because I am mm. asking a lot more questions. I interview people back a little bit more. And I think I'm looking for something different. I'm looking to I'm looking to build something. I, I, I think maybe I was looking for something to build me in my younger days. And now I very much mm. am driven by building something. And I'm wondering if the the maturational arc is then when you get older that you want to sort of give that away. Like if you want to like build something and then give away the thing you've built, like, you know, mentor and sort of not protect a legacy, but but sort of make sure it's in good hands and steady. Like I see my my wife's boss going through this. He's like, he's getting, he's not old, but he's getting on toward retirement age. And a lot of his life is now focused on what the disposition of his company, like what happens with it and how the people that depend on him are taken care of, whether they be family or employees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's not, he's looking to build still, but it's a different headspace, I guess I'll say. Uh, he's looking to build something to give it away and not just for the sake of it. So, uh, That's interesting, David. And I also, what you said makes me think, I wonder too if it's, you know, for some people, it's building one thing and you build it and build it and build it and give it away. And for other people more like me, I, you know, I'm in lot, I like being in lots of different spaces and then giving away within that space. Um, but sometimes that's really hard because it's not just one clear thing. Correct. I, I remember one time I was uh, probably a f- few years ago, I was on a date with someone and they were sort of interviewing me like quite intensely about my dreams. I don't know if I've told you this story. And he, he was asking me like, so what's your dream in life? And I, my answer in so many words was like, well, there's not just one big dream, but this is how, this is what's important to me. This is how I operate. This is how, you know, and I think that could work out in many different ways, but this, this is the core of who I am. And And then as if he didn't listen to me at all, he said, well, I have a dream and I think it's big enough for both of us. (laughs) Well, that's for both. Would you want to be a part of my dream? And I thought, no, thank you. (laughs) 
<laughs> it was ballsy. <laughs> but I also thought it was a very good example of someone who has a very clear dream and someone who's like, well, it's more about, yeah. <laughs> That's such, yeah, so there's like people who want to, um, this is a, d- a distinction that, uh, a friend of mine used, I, I won't use his name on here because I'm going to say it, it to me, it, it'll sound disparaging. I don't mean to disparage him, but it's clearly divergent from um, what I, how I'm wired. Um, so I, I am sort of entrepreneurial, but also risk averse. So I don't want to be micromanaged. Mm-hmm. I've learned this about myself. I like autonomy. I like variety. I like starting new things. I like starting things. I don't necessarily love sustaining them long-term um, enterprise-wise. Like, yeah, I mean, I, I'll keep keep them going, but I love helping people start things too. Mm-hmm. And he, this person was talking to me and he said, I'm really tired of build, helping other people build their empires. I want to build mine and have people mm-hmm. help me build my empire. And I think he he wasn't like stroking a cat at, like and like looking out like with a shaved head <laughs> and, like you know a turtleneck like evil, yeah. but like the message was clear like mm-hmm. my sweat equity should be benefiting me and my family pretty much exclusively and nobody else should make money off of what I do I should make money off of what other people do, mm-hmm. and I was like that's bullshit like I don't like I think we can he and I can speak the language of, of being entrepreneurial. But, and I I am too conservative like my dad about money. Like I want to make sure we have enough coming in. Uh, I'm not a wing and a prayer guy. I'm in my 40s. Like I need to be saving for retirement and thinking, you know, being re- responsible. God willing, we'll have a kid, you know, and thinking about her future mm-hmm. at some point. You know, so I'm like, but I would, that kind of language caught me. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that that is where a lot of entrepreneurialism comes from, where it's like, it's about keeping profit. You know, it's like, yeah. it's like, okay, it's not about making a living. It's about keeping profit and knowing, you know, he said, he, he said that he would be comfortable if he made, you know, maybe three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000 a year. He thought that would be okay. Wow. And I was like, yeah. I'm like, Lord have mercy. Like you, yeah. Like that's, that's very interesting to me, but that I think that was a distinction. I don't know if it'll catch people out there, but that to me it was like, oh, I'm not that. Like that laid it bare. I'm like, oh, we're different in that regard. I'm like, I'm happy to help people build things, but empire is the wrong metaphor. Like mm-hmm. I'm more more of a community or more of a an inner, you know, like a, an organization with sort of tentacles that reach out and touch other people. I'm more yeah. about solving a problem. I'm at my best when I'm helping people work on a big social ill Hmm. like that that feels too big for everybody and getting tired around that but being re-energized by the fact that we're at least trying to do something big like that's that's what that's where i found that i i really really like to put my brain power and i feel most creative when i'm doing that and most collaborative Hmm. i'm also a collaborator i've learned that too Mm -hmm. i feel like we're just babbling now i'm just talking about myself but (laughs) Well, that's cool how you, that statement he said really helped communicate more who you are. And I also think that statement says something about, well, one, there's just so many ways to, different ways to think about careers and monies and how we, money and how we make choices. And also how our faith informs it. Right. Because for me, as I hear that immediately, 
Well, and this, the funny thing is, is like the Dame, Dave Ramsey course about financial peace university and all that. Uh, wonderful, super wonderful. Like I know so many people who have gotten out of debt because of that, but I cringe a little bit on the language uh, involving wealth and like gaining wealth, accumulating wealth. And granted, it's all for, you know, the stability of your family, your legacy, all that, like it's good things. But my Christian faith, I think, and again, it's by upbringing. I feel like wealth, gaining wealth, for me, what excites me about having more money is being able to give away more money. And I think about a dear family friend of ours. He's a financial advisor. And he, you know, he's helping all these rich people manage their portfolios or however you call it. And, um, and he's always trying to help them give away more money. So he creates all these options of organizations that they can give away money. And the funny thing is, is the more money someone has, the more it's pulling teeth to try to help them give money away. Um, but he is so passionate about the fact that actually when you have more money, you can do so much good. And their family has been so unintentional and in, in what they've done with their, the money they've given away. And that really excites me. Um, so those are some of the, the language around wealth that can kind of irritate me. But then I also realize it's my own worldview as well. How is that for you? Say, so, yeah, I'm curious what, what faith does to put a check on or a, sort of a bridle or a governor on, on what, how we think about work and put, keeping things within certain limits. Um, yeah, I think I think I relate to that. Where I'm like, I there are certain things I want. I'm or, or I'm fairly materialistic, I would say, uh, in ways that remember I've talked about. Like as I get older, there's things that you don't like to think about yourself, but they're true. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there there are material things that I think are really cool and I would like to have and make me happy within certain reasonable limits. But um, the idea I was listening. Well, I was listening to my wife read a book the other day. She was reading aloud to me because we're dorks. Um, and <laughs> it's actually uh, a guy who I want to have on the podcast. Uh, it's possible that it might happen. I talked to him before. But uh, you're, James Mumford, who you know, Brooke. Yeah. He had wrote a book, and we were reading aloud the first chapter, and it was about aging. It actually was about physician-assisted suicide, of all things. But he talks about uh, people's expectation – of the their four their forefathers like you know or the grandfathers or grandmothers or mothers or fathers like leaving them money behind and mm -hmm. people are now living so long that you can't really you you're put in a bind where it's like it's it's maybe no longer reasonable to expect to leave a lot of money behind because if you live till you're 85 or 95 you really deplete your savings because old age care costs so much can be mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Even if you have right. a nice nest egg, 10 years at this is, you know, one, two, three million dollars. And people just wow. don't have that. Like there's no money left to give away. Um, and that I've just been thinking, isn't that kind of right in some ways? Like I, I want to make sure we're not hand to mouth, but uh, now I'm all over the place. I watched a video. Do you remember a Christian musician named Rich Rich Mullins? I think so. He's saying he was known for that song, Awesome God. Ah, uh, yeah. 
he was known for a lot of other stuff too. That was one of his more popular ones. It got sung as a collective like worship song. But there was a documentary done. It was released posthumously. He died in a car accident when he was probably in his 40s. Mm-hmm. And he uh, he had this image that he loved. And he basically was like, I he didn't feel like he had a home, but he also gave away most of his money. He lived off of, he you know, was a millionaire mm-hmm. many times over, but he had a, a board of trustees. And he said, you were to pay me whatever the average working man in America makes for that year, and the mm-hmm. rest of my money is managed by you and goes to the church and to wherever else you want it. But I never want to live more than the average, like, blue-collar working guy makes. Like, that's what I will live on, and that's what mm-hmm. you were to pay me. I don't want to see my checks. He didn't even see the money he made. He was paid by wow. people who saw cool. his money. And he had this image of he loved Ireland and he had this thing about Irish sweaters and how they would, like, knit charms into them. And uh, so if they came back from war and their bodies washed up on sea, they, if they perished at sea, their widows could tell who they were by their sweaters they were wearing. Oh, my. And he and he was talking about, he's like, That's, this is how I kind of want to live my life. Like, I want to be, you know, like, I want to wash up on God's shore and be like, I know him. He's mine. I can tell. And his joke would be, I can tell by his sweater. You know, like, like he bore the marks, and I'm like, that spoke to me. I watched that in my 20s, and I thought, but there's a guy who who had a lot figured out. You know, like, you know, like, there's no, there's no reward like coming out in heaven like well fed. You know, on the other side of death, like with perfectly preserved teeth and hair and skin, and you know, dying with a few million in the bank. Something about that has been lauded, and I think you miss something. If that's your goal, because you, as much as you gave, you left a lot more behind that you didn't give to do that, to leave yeah. money behind. And I thought that was so interesting. Ooh, that really touches me. Yeah. It's really true. So I, yeah. Ooh, you brought us to a solemn place, David. <laughs> I did. I did. It uh, feels extra solemn for me too, because I had a good college friend that just died yesterday of a insanely rare cancer it, oh, no. the the fight lasted literally a month and a half and he was my age and now yeah he's in the kingdom of heaven and i'm uh, on a job search so it really you know put put it in perspective like yeah it's really true like for for those of us who have chosen this story for those of us who follow jesus it really, I mean, these are all super important things that we're looking at and making question, uh, decisions about and saving and being wise and wanting to care for our families and children and all this super good. But at the end of the day, we're going to be like my friend yeah. who, who dies. Yeah. Uh, and we don't know when. Um, and then money is the last thought on his head, in his head. And yeah. that's really powerful. It is. Um, it so is. I'm actually glad that we're ending in this place. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that if anything, Christian faith we is needed in the economy because this is this is the kind of things that that will push you. They should push people to do jobs that are not necessarily glamorous, but they're responding to need, right? Responding mm-hmm. to need, um, yeah. the need that they see around them, and and also yeah. presupposing that you actually look for need around you. 
And I'm not just talking about feeding feeding the homeless or the hungry, mm. which is which is good and noble. But there is need everywhere, and everywhere. some of it some of it is not sexy. You know, yeah. I think I think that's one of the, the the great marks we have of faith is when we're we're found in places that aren't necessarily sexy, but but necessary. Absolutely. Wow, I have to give an a- amen to that. This nice. is a good chat. <laughs> it was. I don't know if it will make a good episode. We'll see what people think. But we'll see. Uh, but it was a good chat. Well, so th- thanks for listening to us talk this week. We'll have one more in our transition series that may come out uh, in the next two weeks because it's over Christmas. So I'm guessing we won't find too many people to interview uh, during that time. We're all sort of retreating back into house and kin as much as we can with COVID. So um, yeah, but we'll we'll talk soon. Have everybody have a merry Christmas. Life's not a sequence program from the sky Life's a storm